You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. I declare bankruptcy! Hey, I just wanted you to know that you can't just say the word bankruptcy and expect anything to happen. I didn't say it. I declared it. Still. <laughs> well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you in this morning. If you have your scriptures, if you have a Bible or one of the journal notebooks that we had available at the coffee bar, if you want to open that up to Mark chapter 3, we're going to be at the end of Mark chapter 3, and uh, we are moving through slowly, but we're trying to do it quick enough so that we don't get bored with it, right? Uh, And sometimes what happens with that is we have a week like this one where there's just a ton packed into one short little like section, and I'm going to do my best in the time we have this morning to unpack that. So if you want to move to the end of Mark chapter 3, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is something that you may not catch if you're just reading through it. Uh, It kind of takes like some extra study to really catch this thing that happens with Mark. Uh, He employs this writing technique. It's a writing technique that theologians and scholars that have studied his writing, studied this book, have titled The Markin Sandwich. They took Mark's name and just added sandwich to it. I don't know why they didn't call it the Mark Witch. I think that's a lot more catchy. Uh, But, you know, theologians, scholars don't always tend to be the most creative of people. But we're going to look at this this morning. And what happens in this writing technique, what happens in this style is the author takes two seemingly different things and then sandwiches them together. And so we have kind of what would be our bread, and that's kind of one whole story. And then Mark just starts telling a whole other story and just shoves it in there and then comes back to the original story at the end so you have a sandwich in the telling of this story. And all of that then we're left asking the question, okay, well, what do these two totally opposite things have to do with one another? And as we ask that question and hopefully answer it, it can enrich both stories and we understand them deeper. That is the hope of the Mark and Sandwich. So this morning, as we're going through, we're going to create a sandwich here on stage. I'm going back to, you know, just the, the band has been making fun of me saying I need to work at Subway, uh, become a sandwich artist. We're going to be making a sandwich this morning. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, am I going to share the sandwich afterwards? No way, baby. I mean, this is my lunch. We're, it's going to be what I'm eating. Sorry, I'm not sharing. Uh, so let's look at this together. The Mark and sandwich. Here we have at the end of Mark chapter 3, we get in verse 20, we have a story about Jesus. And it says this right here. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So right here, that would be our base layer. That's our bread. That's the first part of the story is we hear about Jesus's family coming to get Jesus and take him home The reason being that they think he's crazy. They think Jesus has had a breakdown. So that's the story Mark starts telling. Then he pumps the brakes and he starts telling another story. But this is an interesting thing right here. I mean, first we just hear that it's Jesus's, or later on we hear in the passage, it was Jesus's mother and brothers. And we don't know the full reasons of this, but the reason the Bible identifies is that they think Jesus is having a breakdown. And so they're taking him back home. Maybe they're worried that it's going to reflect poorly on the family. Maybe they're worried for Jesus' safety. We don't get all the reasons other than just they think that he's crazy. Then as we read a little bit further, chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And then the scribes, 
These would be experts in the Jewish law. So these are the religious leaders. A lot of times we lump them in with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. These would be people that knew God's Old Testament word front and back. They had it memorized. So these scribes, experts in the law, it says that the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, he, talking about Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Now, this is sort of another story. It's not necessarily our bread, but we're not quite into the meat of the passage yet. So I'm considering this. I think I'm maybe like breaking the rules a little bit with the Mark and Sandwich, but I'm going to call this the cheese of the sandwich, right? And we got this nice packaged American cheese. I don't think it's even cheese. I don't think they can call it cheese on the package because it's not actually made of anything real, but uh, there we go. It's what we had in the back, so it's what I'm using. And I like to put, I know you're thinking like, well, I typically put my cheese on the top of the meat. I like mine on the bottom because I don't want it to stick to the roof of my mouth, right? And also it works with the passage. So just go with me. So now we have our cheese, which is the Pharisees coming in and just hassling Jesus, which we see often. I mean, they are just nagging him at every turn. But it says that the, the scribes came and they accused him of being possessed by demons. They've seen him casting out demons and now they're saying it's by the power of Satan that he is casting out Satan. Now, if we just look at those two verses, or three verses right there, no, it's two, those two verses, we see, man, Jesus is having a rough day, right? I mean, he's got the Pharisees just nagging him again, like he can't get anything done because they're always coming up and, and, and backbiting him and accusing him of different things. Beyond that, now his family is coming to take him because his own family, his mother and brothers, think that he's had a mental breakdown. That's pretty rough. And then beyond that, if you didn't catch it, at the very top there, it says the crowds have pushed in on him so much that he and the disciples hadn't even had a chance to eat. So he's doing all of this on an empty stomach, right? Like if this were me in this story, like it would be moving up to me snapping because I'm getting hangry and I'm ready to eat. I can't eat and you're nagging me. My family doesn't trust me. Jesus is having a rough day. We got to dive into this. We got to talk a little bit about what this accusation is from the Pharisees is they accuse him of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. They say that he is possessed by Beelzebul, which is sort of a nickname for Satan, but if we go into the wording of it, it's basically literally saying master of the house. That's what Beelzebul would mean. And so they're saying it's, he's, the, he's casting out Satan by the master of the house. And so they, they have this idea, this, this huge accusation that Jesus is casting out Satan by the power of Satan. They're accusing Jesus of sorcery which in the Old Testament was something that was considered a capital offense. Sorcery would have been punishable by death according to the Old Testament law. And so they're not just saying like, this guy's like demon possessed. They're saying this guy needs to be killed. He needs to be stopped. It is a serious accusation. And so then Jesus comes to respond to them. And here's what I want to pause just before his response, just before we get into the meat of the story. And look at the people that have rejected Jesus. It's his family, and it's the religious leaders. Now, I find this ironic because of the two groups of people that you think would get it, would recognize Jesus as the Messiah, I would think it'd be his family, the people he grew up with, right? And the religious leaders. But these are the very people that do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. I mean, knowing that Mary is in this group that has come to take Jesus home, Jesus' mother, that makes it even more difficult to swallow, Right? And I want to say, like, but didn't Mary know? Like, Mary, didn't you know that your baby boy? Like, we have the whole song at Christmas. She knew because the angel told her before Jesus was born. 
And now I'm asking, like, well, did she not tell her other kids? Like, her and Joseph did not pass on the story about their, their son, about their brother, Jesus, that he was to be the Messiah, the, the son of God? Did, and, and did Mary just forget all this? Like, how has that happened? And we're not given a huge explanation for it. We can come up with some guesses, maybe. Um, but I do want to point out that later on, we read in the New Testament about many of Jesus' brothers who then become leaders in the church. So if all of them had rejected him, some didn't, or even some who might have rejected Jesus at this point went on to realize who he really was and accepted him. We're talking about James and probably Jude, and we even see Mary at the crucifixion. She stayed with Jesus to the end, and we see kind words between her and Jesus there at the end. And so whatever's going on there, we don't quite get it, but we realize that his own family is saying he can't be what he's saying he is. And then the religious leaders, the ones who should have known God's promises and seen, man, when Jesus healed this leper, that's a direct fulfillment of some of the prophecies in the Old Testament. When Jesus did this thing, that's a direct fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. These experts in the law should have recognized that, but instead they didn't. And I can only guess, I mean, we don't know why, but I can only guess that maybe Jesus' family didn't recognize him as the Son of God because they were certain that they really knew who Jesus was. And then they missed it. And the Pharisees, the scribes, I I would assume it's the same thing, just I think they were certain that they really knew God's plan. And here Jesus did not fulfill God's plan in the way they thought it would be. They didn't expect some carpenter's son to come on the scene, some poor guy from Nazareth. That's not what they were looking for. So I think Jesus' family thought they really knew who Jesus was. And I think the scribes were convinced that they really knew God's plan, but both were mistaken. So then Jesus addresses it. Here's what he does. It says, he called to them and he said to them, how dare you? You wait just one minute. This is not fair what you're saying to me. I know you are, but what am I? This is not how Jesus responds, right? We never see Jesus come back that way. Instead, it says, he calls them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Right now, we get into the meat of this passage. So I got some turkey here. We're going to spread out. This is represent our meat, right? This is what, you know, Mark is really trying to teach us in this passage. That's the meat of it, is Jesus' response to them. And he responds in these two parables. The first parable being about, um, the first parable being about a house divided. Jesus here quotes Abe Lincoln, right? He's heard the speech that Abe Lincoln gave at the Civil War. No, certainly not. It's the other way around. But what Jesus is saying is that he, he first applies to their logic. He uses their logic against them, and he says, listen, how can Satan fight against Satan? That's not gonna work. If I were on Satan's team, why would I be fighting against Satan's team? And if that were happening, the team would fall, right? He even uses a little bit of a play on words because remember that term Beelzebul, means master of the house. And so then Jesus is saying, well, if a house is divided, that house can't stand. If he's the master and I'm serving him, but I'm against him, that house won't stand. Ultimately, it will fall, which is a little bit maybe of Jesus's like prophecy saying, hey, it is gonna fall. Satan's kingdom is about to fall. It is coming to an end. That's why Jesus is here. But on that small level, he just says, the kingdom can't fight against itself or that kingdom won't stand. 
If we look on a larger level, and I think the scribes might start to hear this, they would know from the history of Israel what Jesus is talking about, that a kingdom divided cannot stand. Because in the Old Testament prophets, we read about how the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel had a split, and then both of them ultimately were attacked by enemies and taken off and to be exiled in other lands. So the kingdom of Israel, when it was divided, it could not stand. And so he's talking like just on a basic knowledge level or basic logic level and then maybe on a historical level. But I think there's more going on with Jesus' response. Because we go and as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you've started to hear it already as we would continue through the New Testament. You'll find that the number one thing Jesus talks about, the number one message that he preaches is on the kingdom of God. And so I can't then hear Jesus using the language of a kingdom and not think about this kingdom of God that Jesus has come to establish. And so as Jesus talks about this, I wonder if he's not talking more than just about like a metaphorical kingdom, but he begins talking about the kingdom of Israel. And here Jesus has come as the promise to rescue Israel into this kingdom. But now so many people, the leaders in that kingdom, are standing against what God is doing. And now there's division in the kingdom of Israel. There's division in what God is trying to do. And a kingdom divided cannot stand, which ultimately is what happens to Israel. We see later on in 70 AD, many years after Jesus' death, Jerusalem would be wiped out. The temple would be burned to the ground. That divided kingdom could not stand. And so Jesus talks about that. That's his first parable. A house divided, a kingdom divided. That's the first bit of the meat of the sandwich there. Then he goes on further to this second parable about a strong man. In verse 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's just giving us like basic stuff. If you're going to go rob somebody, make sure they're not really strong because you're going to be able to rob them really well, right? That's what Jesus is saying, but he's putting it in as a a parable. And it's a little bit weird because I think in this parable, Jesus is comparing himself to the thief, which we're uncomfortable with and we're not used to that. Usually like the thief would be Satan. He jumps over the sheep fence, right? And comes to steal, kill, and destroy from the flock of God. But here in this parable... I think Jesus is saying that Satan would be the strong man and he's the one that has come in to plunder the strong man. He's the one that has come in and he's casting out demons. He's entered in and he's stolen the things that Satan has taken. He's freed people from the grasp of demonic oppression. And the only way to do that, he says, is you must have somebody that can come in and bind the strong man. In between the lines there is that we need somebody that is stronger than the strong man. Jesus is saying, Satan is a strong man, but one has come who is even stronger, and he's bound him up. And we could even look a little bit deeper and say, like, well, maybe he's referring to that time where Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but Jesus defeated his temptation. Maybe that was the binding of Satan, and now Jesus goes on and does his ministry. But we know that ultimately, Jesus isn't just going to tie Satan up. He's not just going to bind him. He's not just freeing people from the grip of demonic oppression. Jesus has come to defeat Satan and free all of humanity from the grip of death and from the grip of sin. And all of this is going on as we get to the meat of this passage here in these parables that Jesus tells. And so then he launches into this. He keeps talking. In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now right here we get into what I think is the second 
kind of of the meat. Like just, we sort of change gears. So here I got some ham. First we put some turkey on. This is some Black Forest ham. All the way to the Black Forest to get this from that forest behind the Harry Potter castle. Got that. There we go. There's our, our sandwich so far. And it's just strange how this goes, right? It feels like if we were driving in a car and, and Mark was driving that, he's just swerved once. He's like, Jesus' family came. And then he swerves, starts telling another story. He's like, the Pharisees said this. And then Jesus addressed that. And then Jesus swerves again to start talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a huge and a deep and a very complex theological concept. In preparation for this this week, I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller, who, like, I'd be a Tim Keller fanboy, like, if that existed. He's just an outstanding pastor in New York, very brilliant theologian, written a ton of books. And I listened to him preaching on a similar passage where he addressed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he started out by saying that he did not feel qualified to address that topic. And I was like, oh, great. Like, if Tim Keller's not good enough to talk about this, like, how am I supposed to get up and make heads and tails of it? But here we have Jesus talking about a very serious thing, blasphemy. And if we just look at it, I mean, we don't usually use that word, right? So we have to kind of define it. If you just look at the definition, it would be slanderous, detraction, injurious speech against a person and or their character. So this morning you were like, well, I think your sandwich is stupid and I don't think you're a good person, Elliot. You'd be blaspheming me, right? Which, of course, none of you would say that because look at this sandwich. That's what blasphemy is. It's saying something about somebody. It's injurious speech towards someone. And this is what Jesus identifies as the unforgivable sin. He says all sins will be forgiven, but this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. So I want to be very clear here when we begin talking about this idea of the unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not suicide. It is not homosexuality. It is not smoking. I once worked at a shoe store, and my manager, we were talking about stuff one day, and she's like, I think God's going to forgive all the sins, but I tell you what, there ain't no ashtray at the pearly gates. And I was like, what? Like, you think all of them but smoking? Like, God can't forgive that? We have these ideas sometimes that there's these certain sins that are just too dirty, too evil to be forgiven by God, but that's not what Jesus taught. He taught the only sin that didn't get forgiven was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so we really have to understand this and understand what it is because that's the one thing. That's the one sin that won't be forgiven. That's the one sin that will keep us from eternity with God that will send us to hell is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so as we get into it, I, I'm reminded of that office clip that we showed. Because I think we need to say like, oh, so do I just say it? You can't just say it, right? I feel a little bit like Oscar poking into Michael's office. Like, you know you can't just say blasphemy or something blasphemy and do it. And you're like, ah, but I declared it. Like, there's still a little bit more. With bankruptcy, we know Michael Scott can't just say, I declare bankruptcy and be bankrupt. There has to be, like, paperwork filed. Notaries have to stamp things. There's a whole thing to it. It's not just saying it. And I think that's true of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as well. You're not just saying it. It's not just something you would say. There's an old, old English theologian who lived in the 1800s. His name was Henry Alford. And he's, he described it as this. He said, it's not a specific sin, but blasphemy is a state of sin. A state of willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. It's more than just saying something mean about the Holy Spirit. It's a willful determination. It's a constant turning away and pressing away of the Holy Spirit. That's what blasphemy is. And so as we look at this idea, well, well blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's more than just having a moment where you might curse God. 
That's more than just like something you can do by accident. It is turning away from the Spirit. It is rejecting the Spirit, saying, that's not a thing for me. I don't believe it. I don't want anything of it. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, I want to be clear with this, because sometimes I've worked with people in my career in ministry that will come to me and be like, I think I did that. They're like, I, I, I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Like, I had this moment. I wanted to make my parents angry. Or I just, I don't even know what I was thinking. I just wanted to see what would happen. And I just, I cussed at God. And they're terrified that now they've lost their salvation. I don't think that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's not just speaking against God. It is the willful act, the continued determination to run from God, to reject the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world and in our lives. So the question we have to ask is, why is that the sin? Why is that the one that doesn't get forgiven? Well, if we look at who the Holy Spirit is, I think it makes more sense if we look at what the Holy Spirit's job is, what the role of the Holy Spirit is, it begins to make more sense. If you look in John 18, 8, as Jesus spoke to his disciples about the Holy Spirit that would come, the, the counselor, the helper, he says this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin. And so if we're rejecting the Holy Spirit, then we now are rejecting the fact that we have sin. We're rejecting his conviction of sin, saying, I don't have sin in my life. I'm perfect. I don't need anything. I'm not on a, on a path to the grave. I'm not going to die for all of eternity. That is rejecting the Holy Spirit because this Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Galatians 5, 17 and 18 says this. It says that the Holy Spirit shows us our sin. And it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The role of the Holy Spirit is to show us where we've been wrong, is to convict us of our sin, but more than that, to bring us towards God and let us see that we have a sin problem, a sin problem that will lead to eternal death, separated from God in hell, that we have that problem, but God is the solution. So it draws us to God. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And so if we're rejecting that, well, then we're rejecting all forgiveness for all sin. Because we're saying, I don't have sin. I don't need God. It's an entire rejection of salvation. That is what I think is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is rejecting God and his plan for us to have a relationship with him. Because if we block out the Spirit, we block out the Spirit's conviction. And if we're not being convicted of our sins, then we're not going to God asking for forgiveness of our sins. So if we commit the sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by turning on him, there's no other sin that we can have be forgiven because we've rejected the Holy Spirit and his power. We've rejected God's presence in our world and our lives. And so this is what Jesus starts talking about in the middle of this section as the scribes are nagging at him and his family is accusing him of being crazy. And I want to just pause, though, as we talk about that and, and just point out that the way we picture blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what I've described just now, which is the best picture I think I can come up with based off of Scripture, I think that's what the Bible is really painting here when Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's something that you can just accidentally do. Like, I don't think you're just going to stumble into it. It's not just a word or something that you say. It's the constant turning and pushing away of God in your life. It's the constantly saying, I don't want anything to do with that. It's not in a moment of passion or a moment of anger. I don't think that is turning from God. In fact, the people I've sat down and, and talked to, and they're feeling all guilty and afraid that maybe they've committed this sin and God has given up on them, 
I think that very feeling they have, that conviction of having committed that sin, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in them. And so it's the one time we can be like, oh, I'll pat my anxiety on the back because that's showing God moving and working in my life that I was worried that I might have turned on God because a person who's actually turned away from God, they don't worry that they've turned away from God. So I don't think this is something that can just accidentally happen. So let's keep moving. We get to verse 31. And now we're back to Jesus' family. And it says, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And now we've got back to this original spot, talking about Jesus' family, we get the top part of the bread. And we have this whole sandwich. Two seemingly different stories of Jesus' family being upset with him. Jesus talking about who his real family is, surrounding this meat of the story of, of a kingdom divided, surrounding this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What do all of these have to do together? Why would Mark put all of this together in one sandwich? I think it is because what the Pharisees were doing was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They were saying Jesus is not from God. He is of Satan. They were turning their backs on God's work. They were turning their backs on the Holy Spirit. Jesus' family, it seems like they've done the same thing because they think he's crazy. They're turning their backs on what God is trying to do. And so right here, I think this is why Mark puts all this together. But then at the end, I think we get a, a special key when Jesus talks about family. And he says, who is my family? It is those who do the will of my Father. I think that's the key to why Mark puts all of these together. Because what Jesus is doing is he is coming to establish more than just a kingdom. He's coming to establish a family. Jesus wasn't coming to establish a religion with all of these laws. He was coming to establish a family. And the religious leaders, they were comfortable with the idea of this religion, with this earthly kingdom, but not this heavenly kingdom. Because the religious leaders, as, as they went through this and they would hear about this idea of an unforgivable sin, they probably had particular sins come to mind. We can see these sins in the Old Testament. I was going through them this week in the book of Deuteronomy, and I've been listening through, I'm trying to listen through the whole Bible this year on like that Bible app thing. And so yesterday I was out at Steel Creek Park, and I was walking my dog, and I had it playing. I didn't have headphones, so it was just playing out as I'm walking along. And there weren't a lot of people, so I didn't think I was really disturbing people. And so I'm going, and I got to that chapter where it's about like the death chapter, as Moses is reminding them all the laws God has for their kingdom. And he's saying, if a man and a woman are caught in the act of adultery, they should be removed and they should be stoned. They should be killed. If a, a man takes a woman by force and he rapes her, that man should be executed. It was all of these laws as I'm walking through the park and I'd walk past somebody and be like, oh man, I got to turn this one down, right? Because like, it's the Bible, but then it's these other passages of the Bible. So I'm like trying to hit pause as somebody walks in they're like, hello. So they don't hear like, if you're a this or a that, you're going to get stoned to death. And then in my brain, it's like, if you reject me before men, I will reject you. And I'm like, no, no, like I'm not embarrassed of the Bible. There's just like more going on. But there's all these passages we read about in the Old Testament of people who, because of those certain sins, the worst sins that they had deemed in their kingdom, they would have to be murdered. So for the kingdom of Israel, for the Old Testament kingdom, those would be considered unforgivable sins. 
There was a sacrifice for almost everything else. If you accidentally steal somebody else's ram or you kill somebody's goat or whatever the sin might be, there were sacrifices for all of those sins, but there's several sins, particularly ones that would have to do with murder or adultery or rape, that these would be punishable by death. There was no sacrifice for those sins. So they would be considered unforgivable. But here Jesus is saying in my new kingdom, the only sin that can't be forgiven, the only evil thing that could be done is turning away from God, turning away from the Holy Spirit and his love. The Pharisees were very comfortable with the system they had of the old kingdom, the earthly kingdom. They liked this religion, but Jesus came not to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. He came not to establish a religion, but a family. And so how do we be a part of Jesus's family? Well, he says right there, who's my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's whoever does the will of God of my father. So if we want to be a part of Jesus's kingdom, we know what we don't do. We can't turn our backs on the work of the Holy Spirit, but what we must do is we begin doing God's will. And what is God's will? I'd say the very first thing, God's number one thing of his will, we see it here in in Mark 3:35, or I'm sorry, that's in in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, it says the good and pleasing it is the good and pleasing will in the sight of God our savior who desires all people to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. Number one, God's will is that all people would be saved. So for us to do the will of our Father, number one, we must give our lives over to him. Number one, we must accept the Holy Spirit's conviction and say, I have a sin problem in my life. Even though my sins may not seem like the biggest ones, I've got other smaller sins, but all of those are sins and need to be forgiven because all of those will lead me down a path of destruction. And so instead, I'm going to give my life up to Jesus. I'm going to give my sins over to him and say, I need your forgiveness so that I can experience true life. So God's will for us is, number one, accepting him Accepting his spirit and accepting the spirit's conviction of our sins so that our sins can be forgiven. And then we enter into God's family. Not a religion, not an earthly kingdom, but a family. A family that God chose. I know my kids now, but I didn't get to pick my kids out, right? And I love them to death, but I didn't see a bunch of kids. Everybody like, I'll take that one and that one and that one and not these. These that have done that thing. I don't want them to be my kids. God looked at all of us, all of you, and said, I want them to be my children. I pick them, knowing them, knowing everything they've done. I pick them. I want them to be in my family. And so that's following God's will, is accepting that call to his family. And then beyond that, following God's will is just doing the things Jesus taught about, loving others, serving others, Spreading the name of Jesus in our world, helping others to see the love of God, helping others to hear the Holy Spirit as it convicts them and tries to draw them into a relationship with their creator. That's the will of God. And so I don't know what we do with all this this morning. I like to preach sermons and at the end say, like, here's how your week should change based off of this text. It's maybe a little bit different than that. Maybe that's just all like mental changes we need to make. But number one, I hope that's something that maybe happens is that for some of us, this can clear up some theology. Maybe take a blurry place or some rumors that we heard and really correct those so that we can clearly see what it takes to be a Christian and the one thing that might prevent someone from being a Christian, which is rejecting the Holy Spirit. I hope that happens with us. But second, I hope it impacts our view of Christianity our view of what we do here at church. We're not here to set up an earthly kingdom. 
We're not here to be a part of a religion. We're here to be a family together with God as our Father, whose image we have been created in, being brothers and sisters with Christ, who gave up his life for us, being brothers and sisters with one another, and together trying to do God's will, which is not only accepting the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, but also trying to bring others to the Holy Spirit, trying to serve and love others. And so this morning, I hope that kind of is is rolling around in our brains, but beyond that, I know that there could be people here, maybe you're invited by a guest or or a family member. There could be someone here who is worried. They're like, I don't know if if I've ever accepted the Holy Spirit. I feel like maybe I've been running from the Spirit. I've been rejecting the Spirit. If that's you this morning, I feel that that feeling you have of realizing that, that's proof of the Holy Spirit talking to you and leading you and guiding you. So we're going to sing a song right now, and then in a little bit, Matt's going to come up and lead us in communion. But during that time, I would just challenge you to think about these things, but also ask yourself the question of if you can call yourself a part of God's family. Ask yourself that question. If you you can't answer it clearly, I'd love to speak with you in the back. Or one of our other church leaders can speak with you over there at our prayer room about what it means to be a Christian, how you can become a Christian, and what it is to be a part of God's family. So with all that, I'm going to invite you to stand right now. And then I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. We're going to have this stuff in our brains. And then Matt's going to come out and lead us in communion. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for what Mark shows us this morning about what Jesus taught. And I pray, God, that you would help us to understand it on a deeper, more personal level. God, I pray for anyone this morning who's been worried of the sins they might have committed and things that might have kept them from you or your presence and let them feel confident, God, in your love. Let them feel confident in your sacrifice that covered up all our sins, past, present, and future, small or large. Your sacrifice, your love, God, that brought us into your family. God, we thank you for that. God, I want to pray for anyone sitting in here this morning who has been turning from you, who has been rejecting your spirit, maybe speaking against you in a big way or just living as if you didn't exist. God, I pray for that person this morning. And I ask God that your spirit would be loud in their ears, that your hand would be heavy upon them, that they would feel their heart reaching out to you, their creator. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see, God, that in you there is hope, that in you there is forgiveness, in you there is family. And so we do not have to be alone. We don't have to be alone in our sin or in our death because we, we have you, our creator, who wants to be in a family with us. So God, I pray for anyone who can't call themselves a follower of Christ, who can't say that they're in your family, God, that you'd give them the courage to stand up this morning and talk to somebody, whether it's the person they came to church with or one of our leaders in the prayer room, God. Let us not leave here unless we know for sure that we are part of your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray.